more than anything, neuroscience shows me that the human person is a mystery. You always need to look at the context that a person's in, the subjective experience of that person and what they're reporting is going on in their interior life. Without these things, you can't understand the meaning of human action. It's, yeah. it's irreducible to biology. Welcome to Purposeful Lab and Maja Center podcast. I'm Katherine Hadra with Dr. Dan Keebler. Here we are at the end of season two already. It's flown by. It's uh, been an exciting season. Some great guests we've had on and we still have another great guest for our last episode. We're going to be speaking with a neuroscientist all about how behavior affects the brain, truly rewires the brain. Dr. Sophia Carosa is a renowned Catholic neuroscientist. She earned a degree in neuroscience and theology, which is, I think, a perfect blend for our purposes. Yes. From the University of Notre Dame, she graduated as the valedictorian in 2019. So she's very young as well and impressive. Let's get to it with our interview with Dr. Sophia Carosa. Sophia, thanks for taking the time to sit down with us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Great. So just uh, before we get into sort of what your talk was here at the at the meeting, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the research you did for your for your PhD, which you just sure just finished? Yeah, just submitted a couple of weeks ago. So my thesis was on the effect of abuse and neglect on child brain development, and specifically applying this the methods of network science to this question of how it is that children adapt to early experiences of adversity. So I reconstructed the structural brain networks of lots of different children and then used computational models to try to understand how they might differ and why uh, based on experiences of deprivation and threatening experiences early in life. Okay. So looking to see uh, what, uh, how do they adapt to that or how yeah. they try to, the brain tries to uh, sort of overcome uh, like developmental. Yeah, how it shapes the brain, exactly, yeah. in a way that then might account for uh, for some psychological and psychiatric outcomes that we see later in life. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting you talk, one of the, the things that I, I really um, struck me was you talk about how the brain is a relational organ. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that there's, there's uh, biological and theological sort of uh, uh, the stuff underneath that to un- uh, unpack, but what do you mean, like from a biological perspective, how do you see the brain as a relational organism and organ? Yeah. And, and how does that work? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really one of the most beautiful facts of the brain, I think. Uh, the brain as a relational organ. When I use that phrase, what I mean is that over the course of childhood, even embryonic development, um, the primary driver of the emergence of the structure and function of the human brain is loving relationship. First with the mother and then with the mother and father and then a broader community. But it's especially you see this in the postnatal period. So after birth, the uh, factor that shapes which connections are kept in the brain and which ones are eliminated and how neural circuits are organized to support behavior. The factor that drives all of that is uh, the interactional landscape. And so the kinds of social exchanges that babies have with their parents of talking and gazing at objects together and um, touch is so important. And all of these provide the sensory information that from the outside to within shapes, uh, shapes brain structure. And again, in a way that sets the foundation for a lifetime of cognition and emotional regulation and behavior and health. And so, uh, yeah, so you can't understand the brain or anything that the brain supports throughout the lifespan 
uh, without looking at the developmental history of the brain. Yeah. And when we're looking at the child, uh, you can't understand a, ch a child's behaviors or um, abilities without an understanding of what that child has been through and where that child has come from, um, specifically when it comes to relationships. And I find this really beautiful. As you yeah. mentioned, there's a lot of theological resonances with right. what it means yeah. to be made in the image of God. And um, yeah, and also it's such an occasion for um, compassion as we encounter others who might be exhibiting behaviors or suffering in ways that we don't understand to ask what might have happened to this person. Yeah. Yeah. What relationships have been deprived? Exactly. You know, because it, it, yeah. you know, looking at psychology, you see these stages of, of development. And so if you don't have the proper relationships at one stage, it's hard to form. Yeah. Most, but so it's not just child, the brain development, but it's throughout your life. There's a, exactly. a, a relation. There's an expectation of relationship, yeah, and that's the foundation upon which we have to build. Yeah, yeah, and and, and from a theological perspective, because obviously we're not disembodied brains, right? Right, we, we are. Right, we are. Uh, it's not our brain and our body, but we yeah. are. We are one. It, it, we are relational mm. organisms, not just a relational. Our brain is very um, um, indicative of, of 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 how relationships affect us, but uh, we are relational. Absolutely, yeah. In, in, in a way, and how do you see that um, sort of resonating with, say, uh, a theological understanding of uh, uh, of a human person from an anthropological sense of yeah. Christian anthropology? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I always think of it in terms of the first creation narrative in Genesis, and when when the Lord makes the human person in His image and likeness, and this is a God who's revealed Himself to be Trinity. And so to be a relationship of love amongst these three persons and yeah. that all of creation, but most especially the human person, is the outpouring of that Trinitarian life. And so the human person's destiny, origin and destiny, is in this Trinitarian love. And so to most flourish as a human being is to become relational, more relational, to embrace yeah. interdependence and to find one's fulfillment in these relationships of love. And I think it's it's beautiful to see not just a, a reflection of that in our biology, but actually the means through which that's achieved on the physical level in our biology. Uh, it's in allowing ourselves to be shaped and nourished uh, by others and then providing that for them in turn. Uh, that's what constitutes our flourishing on the biological level. And I think that's that's beautiful that at every level, we see there, there's a unity to the human person, the unity to our calling, our vocation, um, that yeah can, can be such a, a source of esteem for the dignity of what's given to us in like our ordinary family interactions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It makes you see people, I think, in a different light. Because Absolutely. we're in a culture where, you know, and again, I, I fall victim to this all the time, thinking of uh, I'm a self-made person, I'm autonomous, I can do what I want. Yeah. I wouldn't achieve what I want. And yeah. that it's, you know, listening to talking, thinking it through, that, that that's counterproductive to our own flourishing to it think is. that way, right? It, it is. It, it, it's really, uh, uh, you know, you see yourself as uh, the obligations almost you have to other people to mm. help them flourish in relation. Mm. And so th that the, the brain development, uh, their normal, that that's the way we're meant to be. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And how all reality, like you said, the truth, all reality is relational. So yeah. it's hard to, nothing exists in, in, in isolation. In isolation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So, um, you know, one of the things uh, that often, you know, I, I, I'm in, in brain science, you know, in, in typical, uh, in typically, uh, you know, people 
uh, see that as a way of to understand the brain. If we understand the brain, you know, we understand what fires in in uh, Sophia's neurons. Right now. Yeah. We get we we know what's going on. We can reduce you to your neurons. So mm. if we we do uh, imaging of your brain and see this area is active. Um, you know, we've understand you know your behavior and so forth. Um, and uh, you know, certainly understanding what's going on in the brain is important for understanding an embodied person. But right. What are the limitations. Right. And, yeah. So you, you talk about what are the sort of the expectations that you should have, what neuroscience can deliver and mm. what it can't deliver, right? Mm. Because I think there's this danger that people think neuroscience can explain all there is to know right. about who you are, who I am, right? Right, right. So, and so anything that lies beyond that limit must not exist. Yeah. Right. So neuroscience is, as you said, uh, an important and beautiful window into reality and Obviously, as a neuroscientist, I have I have a certain esteem for this. You're your so, boss, so you want to get your so esteem, having right? said yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Um, I yeah, I would just absolutely affirm that there are also very narrow limits uh, when it comes to what neuroscience can tell us about the human person. So, to take your example of looking at the activity of a particular brain region and trying to relate that to a behavior, use it right. to explain a behavior. Uh, now, well, let's take the example of. Um, reasoning right okay, so like right, trying to problem yeah. solve um if we understand what the brain is doing during problem solving we might have a better account of the particular steps that are being taken uh, we might have a better understanding of how on the biological level um, the structure of your brain is supporting the functions that are necessary for that cognitive process to happen so it can be valuable to look at the brain but what it can't tell you is the content or the meaning of your reasoning um, and it can't give you a picture of uh, of the significance or the moral value of your action or um, or the context in which it's taking place. It's a very, very narrow mechanistic procedural look at that particular behavior. Um, so, yeah, so it can't it can't tell you what something is. Um, it can tell you how it's being realized on the biological level, but it's not going to answer questions of of meaning or value or substance or essence in any way. And so, yes, that doesn't mean it's it's useless, but it does mean that just because we can locate something in the brain doesn't mean it doesn't also exist on higher levels of reality that can't be reduced to biology. But because we're not not a soul and body as two separate things, but embodied souls or ensouled bodies. And so, of course, we would expect to see brain activity during something like reasoning or or emotions or yeah in love um and and that's perfectly consistent i'd be i'd be surprised shocked and a little scared if if we could find no trace in the nervous (laughs) system of any activity happening when you fell in love um but yeah but it's completely unreasonable to think that just because there's neural activity doesn't mean that there's also a reality above that that can't be reduced to it yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's like they just well. This is the God area of the brain. So when, yes. when that's active, then you're just imagining God. But yeah. God is going to interact with us, and we're embodied people. Well, my brain should be active when I'm interacting with, yes. with God. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. you know, but but it does help us understand like uh, mental defects, and yeah. there are people that are unable to have you know proper uh, or flourishing relationships because of you know. So there is a. Uh, uh, a usefulness of that and mm-hmm. also a usefulness of knowing what areas of the brain seem to be more active when you do certain things. Yeah. Right? And is how there... they interact and, 
what can help, what can support this process that we're interested in, whatever it is on the neurological level. So not even considering those who might have um, difficulties or disorders, but even in what we would call quote unquote normative population, (laughs) uh, we can, we can really understand what makes for human flourishing on the biological level. And so support those higher level realities that we're interested in. Um, And so, yes, I think it's a very, a very useful tool um, for that, but it depends upon prior commitments and understandings and concepts that you have that don't come from the science itself. And I think that's a really important. Yeah. So yeah, so great. What are those prior commitments? And mm-hmm. maybe give, you know, two extreme examples of those. Or, you know, sure. Yeah, yeah. So for example, there are uh, common studies of free will <laughs> where um, researchers will ask participants to, um, to flex their finger at any time that they desire. And they're measuring brain activity and trying to find a pattern of brain activity that precedes the flexion of the finger and reliably detect this in a way that can make them predict when this participant will flex their finger. And they ask the participants, at what point did you decide to flex your finger? And they show that we can measure brain activity before the participant reports having a conscious decision to flex their finger. So what this seems to say is, oh, well, based on my readout of your brain, I can predict what you're going to do next. Therefore, your idea of freedom is actually an illusion. Um, so this is one extreme example of, of how this is, uh, weaponized ideologically, the study of the brain. But what's very important to understand here is even beyond some of the methodological limits of these studies of free will is that it's presupposing a particular conception of free will that is then operationalized in the study and informs how the research is, is designed and interpreted. So in this case, the idea of free will that's being operationalized, uh, you know, loosely speaking, I don't, I don't embrace this. So they might, they might correct me. Yeah. But what it seems to be is an assumption that free will is, um, is the, the perfect capacity to, to always and co- always consciously decide the details of when you're going to act on urges for motor movement. So to give you, that's a lot of jargon. So it'd be basically the idea that free will is the perfect capacity to, to understand what you're doing and to control when you're doing it, when you do something like suppress a cough. Right. Okay. Now, I don't know any philosopher who would say, yeah, that's a great definition of, of free, free will. will. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so it's really important to think like when you're confronted with experiments like these, how are they conceptualizing the concept at play, whether it's love or free will or the experience of God or fear or whatever it is? Um, and to really scrutinize that because, yeah, I don't deny that you can predict when I'm going to suppress a cough based on my, my brain activity, but I don't think that's at all incompatible with free will, which I understand to take place on a longer time span and to not always mean that I have perfect freedom and because I am constrained and limited and, um, and I don't always have conscious awareness of my freedom because of the way that habits and the virtues form us and things. So, so that's one extreme example. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that answers your question. No, that, yeah, exactly. Because you're, 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 what, when you try to define free will, 
in an experimental fashion, you often reduce it to something you can yes. measure because you can't have somebody sit in there. I'm going to measure your free will as you think about exactly what you're going to do with exactly. the rest of your life. Yeah, you don't make a re- you know you're not going to it's something you can't measure in the, right. In the lab, it has so. to be a discrete decision yeah. that's yeah. measurable yeah. and standardized across individuals, which is another really important right. thing. Okay. So flexing a finger is relatively you know, yeah. but yeah, it's you have to narrow so much to. Um, to be able to measure something in the laboratory. So, yeah. well, this is you talk about, um, you know, how, yeah, we talk about, you know, you know humans have free will, but the, you're also constrained by yeah. your habits and your, your, your behaviors and, and, and your yeah. sins, right? Um, and it was something uh, you talked about, you talk about neuroplasticity, uh, which is the, the ability of uh, neurons to change their, 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 their speed of firing, their connections and so forth. So your brain will change based on what you do um, mm-hmm. over time. So I want to talk a little bit about how that might, um, you know, how that resonates with sort of virtue and habit formation yeah. in, in brain and how that, um, rather than explain away our free will, sort of exalts it, I right. would say. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's really beautiful. The fact of neuroplasticity, the, the change of the brain over time uh, through it really varies based on what part of the brain you're looking at, what capacity you're looking at, what scale you're looking at, but a variety of different biological mechanisms that mean that the brain is not set in stone and that our every experience, if you go away from this conversation remembering anything that we've talked about, it it will entail a change in your brain, right, yeah. which is remarkable that <laughs> there were constantly, uh, Edith Stein has this wonderful line about human beings that we're beings in a state of becoming. And I think I see that in the brain in this in this case. And as you mentioned, when it comes to virtue, I think this is particularly important because the choice of the good makes us grow in our capacity to choose the good. And so we can participate in this way in, in becoming more of who we, we want to be right, and yeah. are made to be. Um, and how you see this in the brain is, is for example, in, uh, in choice of behaviors, consolidating neural circuits that support those behaviors. And so your choice to, uh, to take a very simple example, uh, to smile at your family members first thing in the morning, um, if you make that what might feel like a heroic sacrifice if you're not a morning person, <laughs> if you make that choice repeatedly and consistently over time, what's going to happen in your brain is the formation of new connections and the strengthening and myelination of, of existing connections that makes it easier for you to choose that good, which doesn't mean your freedom's not involved later, right, but right, yeah. it becomes more of a habit broadly understood for you to greet people with with charity and cheerfulness in yeah, the right, morning. Yeah. Um, and that if we had a transparent picture of your brain structure, it would show that that's what that's what you've done. You've become someone who smiles at people in the morning. Um, and and I think that's really beautiful. And it, it gives us a sense of the dignity and importance of attending to our actions and and choosing intentionally those actions that do align with, with what we most desire, um, with who we're most called to be. And, and it gives us a sense, too, of the gravity of our capacity for sin, that we are turning ourselves in our act of sin into someone who sins more, who is further from the Lord. Um, so, yeah, so it's beautiful to see this realized through our materiality, because, again, it's not like the souls over there, yeah, or some yeah. like ghostly substance that's, <laughs> that's acting through like my body's a puppet. Um, but it's it's the organization and the form of the body. And so in my body, it reflects that I have freedom and I have the capacity to shape 
who it is that I become. I mean, it's a wonder, it's a drama. It's a wonderful yeah, existence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause it, 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 it really does because it seems often you think, Oh, you are your, your, your choices, right. In yeah. some esoteric sense, but yeah. here it is that your choices are actually embodied in the flesh, in the flesh. Yeah. Really a, 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 a wonderful, rich idea. So, you know, I think you, you, you talked about how neuroscience can help illuminate, and we've hit on this, illuminate what it means to be human. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, you've hit on a few of these things. So I think a lot of times, you know, we, as, as we talked about, neuroscience, people think it, 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 it illuminates that humans are nothing more than mm. a brain. Mm-hmm. But um, if you were to try to sort of counter that that argument about, hey, this is what I see from neuroscience and how it shows that I'm much more than a brain yeah. or much more. How how would you um, correct it? Correct that. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. Advance a positive account. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say neuroscience, more than anything, neuroscience shows me that the human person is a mystery. Okay. Very yeah. far from providing a comprehensive and exhaustive account of the nature of the human person, neuroscience shows that the human person is a mystery. And we see this, I mean, any number of ways. Um, to give one example, there's this fact of multiple realizability. So this is the idea, very well substantiated with scientific evidence, that for the vast majority of our, not just abstract thoughts, but behaviors, there are many different configurations of neural activity that can s- provide biological substrates for that behavior. So there are multiple real states that can realize the what we thing. see, the same thing yeah. that we see on the cognitive or behavioral level. And so observing someone from the outside, you, you don't know what's happening in their brain. And the implication by reverse is that you can have vastly different patterns of, of brain activity that you're measuring and you don't know what behavior they would be supporting right. or someone in the natural, in the real world, you know? <laughs> um, and so there's, it's very far from the, in the popular mentality, there's this idea that there's a one-to-one correlation between some brain activity and, and some higher right. level behavior, <laughs> right? And so yeah. you, you, if you can read someone's mind, you know right. what they're thinking and, or you can know what they're going to do. And, and that's not true at all. There's, Across individuals and within individuals over time, it's it's remarkably heterogeneous. And so you always need to look at uh, the context that a person's in, the subjective experience of that person and what they're reporting is going on in their interior life. Um, without these things, you can't understand the meaning of human action. It's, yeah. it's irreducible to, uh, to biology. So that's one place I see that the human person is a mystery, but there are any number of things that no matter no matter how much you know about a person's early life, you don't know what th- is going to happen to them later. You can't yeah. say for sure they're going to develop this mental illness or that they're, you know, going to have this IQ or anything like that. That there's there's human freedom there, or I mean, you name it. That you point to any domain in neuroscience, and we see the human person's a mystery. Yeah, so. you know, that, I, I think that resonates with and not only is the human person a mystery, but a whole universe is yes. a mystery, right? Yes. And I'm a cell biologist, so you study cells. Oh, those are simple things we shouldn't know, but the more we study them, the more we realize we can't predict yeah. what they're going to to do unless yeah. you look at like whole populations of cells, like yeah. one at a time. It's, it's so stochastic, which is kind of like what happens with neurons. It's exactly. There's some stochastic nature, but if you look yes. at enough of them, there's a pattern there, but it's still not enough to... Yes. If you look at one or two, they might be... Yeah. I'm so glad you brought this up. Yeah. I've been thinking about stochasticity and developments a lot more lately. I think it's so underappreciated within neuroscience as a contributor. And to me, I mean, it's so beautiful because it 
it leaves so much room for the unpredictable and surprise yeah. in the in the dynamic of human life. And right. I think it's yeah very important and well substantiated, as you said, from from the very neuronal scale <laughs> all the way up to macroscopic brain development. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so you um, are uh, just finishing your PhD, and then yes. you're heading on to do uh, a postdoc. So if you want, yeah, you should share what your research is going to be in in uh, your uh, new endeavors. Sure. So I'm moving on uh, to a postdoc, continuing to look at the effects of early adversity on the brain, but I'm taking uh, additional computational models to look both at human brain evolution. And then trying to bridge uh, biological and artificial neural networks. So I'm going to look at how adverse environmental exposures and human sociality might have shaped the evolution of the brain over recent uh, evolutionary history of our species. That'll be the first half of the project. And then the second half will be taking the biological neural networks of a large group of children turning them into artificial neural networks and then training them on various tasks to see whether or not adversity in their early life changes these statistical properties of the artificial neural networks, changes their capacities for learning or memory in ways that might correspond to human cognition. So I'm not sure if I'll find anything. The the answer will be it doesn't at all. And I'm very open to that. Um, Very, very open to null results. But But I'm excited to be able to sort of push the bounds of what people are doing computationally in the study of, of early adversity. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So this is an interdisciplinary Interdisciplinary. Yeah, yes. I'm very yeah. grateful to have the, the support of an interdisciplinary lab. We've got a philosopher, sociologist, a neurologist, some uh, good statisticians. So yeah. I'm in good that's, hands. That, that's wonderful. I, it, yeah. It's good to see because I think science, um, and it, it has been moving in this direction, I think, in the last 20 years. Mm. And, Instead of it's been so siloed, and yeah. now to answer some of these bigger questions, we realize no, we need to. Mathematicians need to talk to biologists. Need to talk to yes. neural, uh, uh, neural yes. biologists. It's so remarkable forth. how so, many blind spots we have. Yeah, we don't do that, right? So, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate sitting down and, and, and talking. Yeah, uh, thank you. you. And, it's been a joy. Yeah, and best of luck as you start your uh, post. Yeah. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Well, Dan, that was a fascinating conversation. I'm, I'm jealous I couldn't be there myself. And I'm, I'm hopeful, and I think we'll have her on in future seasons, I'm sure, just because there's so much to unpack there. And this, the, the field of neuroscience is just fascinating. What stood out to you the most from your conversation? Yeah, I think, you know, and I can't wait to have her back on and have a longer discussion on any one of these mm-hmm. topics that, uh, that that we hit upon in, in the interview. But I think the the, the relationality of the brain, how the brain is a relational um, organ, and, and how that reflects how uh, humans are to be, um, to flourish as a human being, requires right relationships. And how from the very beginning, you know, you are, um, your brain is shaped by your relationships with everyone you interact with, uh, particularly during development. And um, and it goes against the counter uh, uh, the counter to the sort of culture idea of I'm autonomous, I create my own reality. It's like, no, from the very beginning in utero, in the womb, your brain is forming and it's dependent upon the choices of another person and what that person, what your mother does, affects how your brain develops. And then 
you know, in the first few years of life, you know, the way the brain wires up depends upon your proper interactions with, with other people. And it continues throughout life. And for us to flourish, it's how interdependent we are. We don't create ourselves. We're created, you know, um, uh, by our relations. Even just this aspect of like we are dependent on one another, it reminds me, it harkens back to our season one finale with Father Spitzer, who talked about the four levels of happiness and for our human flourishing. We are dependent on others to get outside of ourselves, to right. love and serve right. others that actually were designed that way. And that's what leads to our purpose and our flourishing and our happiness. So it's fascinating to speak with these different experts in various fields and get to the same conclusion right? yeah, about how right. we are relational beings, truly. And that's reflected in our body. Yeah. And it's reflected in our, our choice. It's interesting how you have this feedback loop where that's reflected in our choices. Mm-hmm. But our choices, because our brain, as she talked about, has this neuroplasticity, right? So our choices affect, you know, how our brain changes over time. And the way our brain changes then affects our choices. And so this habit formation and virtue formation or vice formation that, um, you know, when you do certain things, certain habits, it affects how your brain is structured, which then makes it easier or harder (laughs) to overcome those vices or easier to practice those virtues um, and um, it's it just very um, uh, sobering to realize like uh, how much what we choose affects how what we become. And that we can, you know, change our habits and virtues and, and what have you. But no, that was so fascinating. And again, I think she offers this unique perspective as both neuroscientists, but she has this theology background as well, melded together. I think a great way to end season two. Yeah, yeah, no, and it, it, it shows, you know, particularly, you know, the relationship between faith and, and science and how, you know, one doesn't uh, overcome the other, but they, they complement the other. And you have this danger of thinking, oh, the brain can explain all of my behavior. That fails. And then, you know, faith, well, the faith, you know, the brain has nothing to do with my behavior. And, you know, everything is just, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, some spiritual struggle. Right. Well, we do have a, bi- a biology, our brain, and that does affect, you know, the, our, our choices and our habits and so forth. But we do have the ability to modify those mm-hmm. to some extent. Yeah. And we are now at the Office Hours segment of Purposeful Lab Podcast, where we get to ask Dr. Dan Keebler all types of questions and get your questions answered. All right, Dan, I have this first question I have for you for Office Hours is something I'm personally curious about. I'm going to throw this your way. Um, I want to get your take on something that is surging in popularity, and that is cold plunging. I don't know if you've heard of this or if you've seen this online and social media. Um, I've never done it. I don't think I could personally handle it, but it involves fully submersing the body in cold water, like a bathtub or a tank or a different uh, body of water. And many claim it relieves muscle soreness, it aids recovery, it reduces inflammation, boosts immunity. But what's your take on this? Like, yeah. is this something smart to do for your health or <laughs> is this dangerous to just constantly submerse your body in freezing water? Yeah, it's a very interesting phenomenon. You know, it's the exact opposite of what you think you would want to do with your body. Plunging yourself into cold water particularly can cause a lot of stress on the heart and the heart arrhythmias. So it's not something that you want to do if you've got poor health or whatever. You know, certainly talk to your doctor before you do that. But there is some science behind it that maybe it, it, it would have some benefits, you know, because uh, just like with exercise, you stress your body and it gives you some benefit. Putting your body is submersing it in cold 
will stress your body. And if you, if you stress, you know, sort of a mild stressor on the body can lead to sort of benefits uh, long term, you know, just like, um, like if you exercise too much, it could damage your body. Just like if you get into cold water for too long, I mean, you, you could really damage your body. So that's why it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of concerning, you know, people that just do it and I'm going to jump in and so forth. But there's not many good, um, high quality studies on this. So um, and there could be other factors. So it's known that people that, that swim in cold water have certain health benefits, but could it just be because of the exercise, um, you know, and they're often adapted uh, to that. So, um, and it doesn't, you know, when in animal models, when they do cold stress on animals, it increases certain genes that are associated with health and longevity. So they, it, it does seem to have, there's some biological basis behind it but a lot of the things that people promise and so forth i think they they overhype and i would just caution you know it's not something you you want to just uh throw your body into and uh particularly if you have any any heart conditions because it is a stress on you the older you get if i threw myself in cold water i don't think it would be beneficial <laughs> it's so individualized but that's interesting because yeah. you're an athlete as well so it's interesting yeah. to hear your perspective on that and yeah. just don't just Put yourself in cold water for an indefinite period of time. Right, like there right. is an impact on the body. Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And athletes always like, I'm jump in a cold ice bath and so forth afterwards, and that can reduce swelling and inflammation, but also can do some damage too. So you got to be very careful. You heard it from here. Well, this next question I think is right up our alley when it comes to purposeful labs. So Angelus News conducted a recent interview with Brother Guy Consomagno, who is known as the Pope's astronomer. He's the director of the Vatican Observatory and president of the Vatican Observatory Foundation. And this interview was all about how faith informs science. So again, right yeah, up our alley. Exactly. Um, and Brother Guy said he really sees the universe as quote, the second greatest story ever told and compared scientists to what inspired authors of the Bible did, that they convey the truths about God and his creation. Uh, what did you make of that comparison and, and what Brother Guy had to say in that interview? Yeah, no, I think it was great because he hits on, you know, sort of a, a tradition in the Catholic world of the the two great books, the book of scripture and the book of nature, right? And I think he's hitting on that, that truth that you, you see over and over again, that if you can read the book of nature and, and and not according to what you want it to say, but actually learn from the natural world and the mystery and the beauty and the order in the natural world that they reveal something about the creator. So in a sense, you know, just like the author of scripture is revealing something about God, the, you know, the, the scientist who's sort of telling us about how the natural world is structured reveals something about the creator. Just like, you know, an author, you know, we read a Flannery O'Connor novel, it reveals something about Flannery O'Connor and her, you know, um, um, sort of ideas about how humans are fallen and need grace. So you can pick up on her stories, something about her, just like you get information about the natural world. It reveals something about the creator, right? You know, so I think just like ignorance, the, the, I think St. Jerome says ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. I think ignorance of the natural world is ignorance of God, you know, because it's, it, you're, you're you're not appreciating and fully understanding his his handiwork. That's really well said. There was something that struck me in the interview. You know, brother guy is this Jesuit brother. He has this collar, and he says he loves you know to see people's reaction. Where here's this man who's in a collar, and he has a ring from MIT. Right. That yeah. yes, both can go together. And I think you know his work is a witness in and of itself too, combining. To, yeah, that unity. And that, as, um, you know, I'm on the, the board of the Society of Catholic Scientists, and we, we gave him the St. Albert Award a few years ago because he embodies this sort of um, the, the unity of, of, of science and, and, and faith. 
Yeah. No, I love seeing this topic in the spotlight and in Catholic news. So that was great. And liked getting your reaction from it as well. I want to remind our listeners that we are taking questions for season three of Purposeful Lab. And there's a few ways to do that. Go to MajaCenter.com. You can see all the information there. And you can now call us and leave an audio message with your question, which maybe Dr. Dan Keebler will answer right here on the podcast. That phone number we're putting on the screen for you. We'll put in the show notes, but that phone number is 949-257-2436. 949-257-2436. We want to hear from you. And maybe, again, We'll see what questions we get. We'll see what you'll have to tackle um, in the next season. Uh, but, uh, Dan, you know, as we wrap up season two, again, what a joy. Um, again, blown away by the all the experts that we've spoken to this season. Yeah, and I think you know, when you delve into science, it opens up even more questions. So having, um, you know, uh, Dr. Kroos on, it, it opens all these questions about neuroscience that I want to bring other guests on to talk about and bring her back to talk about. So big questions that we're going to continue to ask and tackle. And again, I want to remind you, make sure to download and find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and go to majacenter.com for more information. That's a wrap on season two. We'll see you next time.